This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. All right, welcome back to another edition of the Dungeon of Doom. Ben, it has been been a weird week, and I don't really know the words for it. I've never experienced anything like it. The game on Sunday speaks for itself. Lions, Packers, that's a, a storied rivalry. There's some you know, bad blood, I would say, that's that's been building there for a little while. It'll come to a head in, in Sunday night football. Playoff berth on the line for, for both teams. Lions need a little help, but the stakes are... Well, they speak for themselves. It's the kind of football that Detroit's been building for a long time and, and just hasn't gotten there. It's, we had, I mean, we haven't seen a game like this in a long time. And yet the DeMar Hamlin injury from Monday night has really cast a shadow over the entire league. I, I think it's sparked terror, fear in, in some of these locker rooms and certainly in Detroit. I've talked to players who have used the words terror and fear this week, afraid. Those are not words you typically hear from yeah. the gladiators of this game, you know? So, and... They have this pivotal, big time, high stakes, national audience kind of game waiting for them in just a couple of days while they're saying these words like afraid and fear and terror. And so it's just a, there's a duality going on that's really, it's, it's difficult to wrap your hands around and understand, but we've done our best this week. We'll do our best in this, this episode to maybe, I don't know, like shed some light on the difficulty of this week for the Detroit Lions. Yeah, it's an important reminder. These are people, these are human beings, and this is real. The tone shift from being in this building Monday afternoon, talking to Dan Campbell, setting the tone for the week, to coming back in here Wednesday, it was very jarring and justifiably so. I mean, it was a terrifying thing to watch at home for anybody to watch Hamlin go down like that. But these guys see themselves in his shoes. They know that that, not, maybe not specifically cardiac arrest, but they know like something of that magnitude could happen to them on this field. And Gosh, I just, like you were talking to guys today, I was talking to Derek Barnes today, and it's just like, they don't know how you could play so soon. Like if you were on the Bills or the Bengals, like you said, well, they're, they're going through these very real human emotions, probably getting questions from their parents or loved ones. Like, how, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you going to be okay? And they're preparing for the biggest games of their lives. I mean, at this level, at least. And it's just, you talk about a young roster going through some challenge. That's a challenge right there. It's without question. Right. And we'll get into more of that in the back end of this podcast. We'll get to Matt Schneidman in, in the back end, the Packers beat writer with The Athletic, and we'll break down this game a little bit and get, get into some of the variables of play, I guess, going into the game. Before that, we've got Michael Herra joining us, which not a friend of the program, I guess, the first time being on, but a, a friend of ours, yeah. longtime beat writer for the Detroit News, currently with the Detroitlions.com as a columnist. And uh, he was there for the, the Chuck Hughes game in 1971. He wasn't even working the game. He was there in the stands and saw what happened jumped into action and did some interviews and so forth. So we'll, we'll talk to Mike about being there with Chuck Hughes, who a Lions player who died on the field, yeah. the, the one known player to die in the field playing, playing this game, which obviously has drawn some comparisons this week with everything that's happened with DeMar Hamlin. First, Ben, you and I, you know, we've, we've been in the locker room two days already this week. So that's an hour's worth of, hour and a half, you know, worth of conversations that we've had with all, all kinds of guys, offense, defense, veterans, rookies. It's been really interesting trying to get a pulse on the locker room, 
I think some guys are a little unfazed. I think most of the guys I talked to were pretty phased by what they saw in the moment. That was pretty visceral. I know it was for DeAndre Swift and, and Jerry Jacobs, two guys that I talked to who had personal relationships with DeMar Hamlin. DeAndre Swift played high school ball with him. They're both best guys on their teams. They developed a relationship from there. I have hung out quite a bit. Jerry Jacobs shares an agent with him. They've hung out quite a bit. They've worked out quite a bit together. Both those guys were watching the game live and they see a guy they know drop to the field and stop breathing. That is, I mean, my hands are sweating just mm -hmm. talking about it. I mean, that's, that's a, it's a, it's such a jarring, difficult thing that, that even in a game of such violence and brutality, you're just not prepared for that. And then you got guys like Jason Cabinda that, you know, he's telling me that his mom was texting him and they did like a prayer in the moment for DeMar Hamlin. I mean, it, like the, the familial fallout, the, the player fallout, the coach fallout. You know, we had, I mean, we're getting to, to Mike O'Hare in a bit talking about the Chuck Hughes game. And we had Aaron Glenn this week, the defensive coordinator for Detroit. He was here in Detroit as a member of the New York Jets for the, the Reggie Brown game yeah. in 1997, where Reggie Brown collapsed on the field, needed to be resuscitated, had a spinal injury, a very, very scary sight. So let, let's get to Aaron. Let, let's hear what he has to say. I thought that was pretty powerful. I actually hadn't connected the dots that he was there for that game. So let's. Let's hear what Aaron Glenn said about that game. What happened Monday night um, with Hamlin? I mean, that was a terrible, terrible thing to uh, actually witness it, actually see it. Um, and I'm actually talking from a player's perspective now of seeing your teammate in that situation and being on the field, being in the locker room, um, not knowing what's going on. Because when you go to battle with somebody all through OTAs, all through training camp, and then you have um, a thought in your mind, I wonder what's going on with this player. Um, it's always tough. And the reason why I relate to that so well, because it happened to me. Um, I think it was 97, it was actually here. My former teammate uh, in college, Reggie Brown, um, his career was ended on a play like that, and we were on the field for quite a while. And I was there to, have to actually see it and witness it, and to see my friend lay down there and notice his career is over with. But not just that, he's, um, you don't know what's happening. The only thing I do know is I saw him and he was purple and blue, and that was as scary as it can get. Um, and he pulled through, as we all know. Um, but man, that's a, uh, it's tough, it's tough. And man, there's a lot of communication, there's a lot of things that can be said one way or another. Um, but the fact of the matter is we're talking about him and his family and his livelihood. Um, and to me, that's as far as it should go, you know? So um, I'll press him and his family and man, we're, we're hoping and we're praying things go well for that player. You know, I, Ben, these are circumstances, they're pretty rare and, and yet they've been common enough in Detroit that you have a couple of examples that people, it's triggering for people. You know, I mean, when DeMar Hamlin went down, a lot of players in Detroit told me they were triggered because of what happened with Savion Smith earlier this year in Detroit, where it, I think it was a less severe situation, but it was still a very severe situation where Savion Smith was temporarily paralyzed for 20 seconds and was whisked away in an ambulance right off the field. They picked up his dad and his, his uncle from the stands and went straight to the, the hospital. It's just serious stuff they have to deal with in the moment. And here they are, you know, weeks later, and they're seeing a guy drop on the field. It's just a jarring, difficult situation for, for all in the game. Yeah, no, I, I just think Aaron Glenn really does capture a lot 
what these guys are going through. I mean, I, I think he was college teammates with Reggie Brown. And it's like, you talk about Swift and Jacobs having connections. I mean, Derek Barnes basically paused for 30 seconds when I was talking to Danny, just passed cross with Hamlin for a week at the senior bowl and kind of felt that it's just, it's one of those instances where I am thankful that there are guys like Aaron Glenn on this coaching staff who can kind of communicate those feelings and just kind of make it real. It's more than just a game. And when you've got guys fighting for their careers, fighting for their like legacies and resumes, if you will. And it's just, it's more than a game. And the focus is just kind of, like you said, it's kind of been sucked out of this game, justifiably so. But man, it's just a weird, weird week. The tone has just completely changed and it's just a very humanizing week for sure. Well, Ben, and I never even told you this story. So it's interesting that you use that word humanizing, but I was talking with Austin Bryant this week, backup pass rusher. I wanted to talk to him because he had said some things on Twitter that interested me and I just wanted to catch up with him and hear what he had to say basically because it sounded like he had something to say. And he told me straight up that he felt dehumanized by the sport Mm -hmm. a little bit because of the rush back to football that happened in New England. They were back playing like within five minutes of that ambulance leaving the field and their guy being at that moment paralyzed Mm -hmm. We've seen it before with, with Reggie Brown and, and Chuck Hughes and so forth back in the day. They did stop the game on, on Monday night, but there was a return two days later to the football as usual. The Lions opened with a team prayer uh, in the meeting. They addressed the situation. It's not like they just pretended like it didn't exist. They, they couldn't possibly do that. But at the same time, they were back on that practice field on Wednesday installing offense and defense for a game on Sunday night against the Green Bay Packers. And it's not just a game, but obviously a game with everything on the line, everything they've worked for this season. And Austin Bryant sort of felt a little dehumanizing. You know, the, I think some of these players sometimes feel like their their bodies are for entertainment, their brains are for entertainment. And of course, they're rewarded handsomely, but it doesn't take away from the, the underbelly of the business. And I think we've seen some of that over the years with concussions and so forth. And, and this week, we're seeing it once again with the critical injury to Tamar Hamlin. And yet, they still got to go play a game on Sunday night. Yeah. So I, I want to get real quickly to a quote from Jason Cabinda that's kind of stuck with me this week, and then we can get to our guests and, and into the game. This quote stuck with me because I think it really strikes at the heart of the conflict that's inside a lot of these guys who are amazing athletes who have been building toward this moment their whole lives, toward a game like this on Sunday their whole lives, but also having to deal with the, the human reality of, of the brutality and the violence of this game. So let's, let's cue up Jason Cabinda, fullback for the Lions, and also the team's rep to the the Players Association. I think when you're at home, or you know, there's guys who you know have wives with kids. You know, I mean, it's not easy to see that happen, and then you know, look at your wife and kids and say, "Yeah, I'm going to go do that tomorrow." You know, so that's definitely not an easy thing. But I mean, you can't afford to think like that. Um, I mean, so many of us have been playing this game all of our lives. Um, hopefully, nothing scary like that has happened to any of us. Um, I do think if that something like that happened to me, I would probably be done. Though, um, that'd be enough. <laughs> Uh, you'd think seeing it happen to somebody else would be enough, but I mean, you, you love the game. Yeah, that's that's the reality. Um, whether that's right or it's wrong, that's whether that makes us sick or crazy for for loving it. That's that's who we are. Ooh, like I mean, like for me, like it, it's a short and sweet quote, but really captures the the full picture of the conflict of emotions going on for mm-hmm. so many of these guys. No, absolutely, and coming from Cabinda, somebody who's known. As a former linebacker, a fullback, and you said it, Austin Bryant said it perfectly too. I mean, it's humanizing for the people watching the game, but it's de- dehumanizing for the guys playing it because it's just like, I mean, that's just, I, I, I don't have much to add other than that. Well, I mean, that's okay. I, it's just, you know, I mean, they're saying it best. I mean, they're, they're pouring their feelings out and I, I appreciate them being real about this. It's just, that's, that's terrifying. That's hard to bounce back from. I mean, you put their, yourselves in their shoes and it's like, how the hell do you 
strap on the pads and just get back to work five or six days later. Like, I don't know. It's okay. It's the real brotherhood. We, there's been a lot of guys this week struggling to find the words to answer hard questions. So you're not the first one. I'm not the first one. (laughs) It's something that, that is difficult. We've seen it before here and there in Lions history, unfortunately, with Chuck Hughes, with Reggie Brown. It's rare, thankfully, but it does happen. We saw it this year with Savion Smith, a very serious injury, maybe not life threatening, but like, I mean, the man could not feel or move his extremities and thought he was paralyzed for almost a half a minute. That's terrifying. And then while he was being taken to the hospital and no one knew what was going on, they had to continue playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and like it or not, they're going to continue playing on Sunday. And I think most of the guys believe that football should move on, that that's kind of the nature of the game. But some guys don't believe that. There is some conflict in the locker room about, about where they're at right now and whether they should be this weekend. They will be playing. It's amazing when Chuck Hughes, when he died on the yeah. field, they finished that game. Yeah. That, that, that boggles my mind. It's so different from what happened with Tamar Hamlin this week where they stopped the game. So let, let's get to Michael Harry. I really respect his point of view because he's not a guy just talking about that game. He was there, his butt in the seat and the bleachers and saw it all go down, jumped into action as a reporter. It's a really fascinating story. So let's get to, to Michael Harry. All right, Ben, let's bring in now, you know, longtime friend of ours, just a, a longtime guy in general. <laughs> <laughs> Mike O'Hara, a real veteran of the Detroit media in general, the Lions beat in particular, started the Detroit News in 1966. <laughs> Mike, thank you for, for joining the program. Well, thanks for having me and done both. I hope, hope your readers and listeners enjoy your perspectives as much as I do. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, Mike. And I always enjoy talking to you. Yeah, I mean, you're just an institution of of lion's information you've been there for for so long so 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 long you're a hall of fame sports reporter I know, I know you cringe when i say that but you have to accept the fact that people have admired your work for a long time you've been around for such a long time and, and you were you are the one of the last guys still in detroit media mike who was there for chuck hughes when when chuck died in a 1971 game at tiger stadium right tiger stadium yeah tiger stadium at the time um, yeah and so I understand you were there, maybe not in a professional capacity, but I'm curious your perspective now with everything happening with, with Hamlin and, and Cincinnati and you know, his near-death experience on the field. You know, there's a lot of talk going on around, but, you know, Chuck Hughes and sure. the guy who did die on the field for, for Detroit. And you were there for it, Mike. So I'm just really curious to hear your, your point of view on what that day was like. Well, just to give you a little bit of background on it, it was just like I buttons a press pass for the game. Well, that was covering back then. So, hey, have you got an extra pass? You didn't have to go through seven interviews and all that. They just take it and sit up there in the in the third row. I went with a fellow colleague who uh, worked there. So we were both sitting up there in the third row together. And it was just a game. Now, the Lions were coming off a really good season in 1970. They were 10 and 4, and they were a wild card playoff team. They'd won their last five games, and they were really expecting big things again in 1971. And I had just really just gotten out of the Army at all. So I got out in, in March of, of 71, and I was so sort of calming down and getting into a bit of normal light in my version of life, of course. And so Dan Ewald's the guy I went with. He later became the beat man on the Detroit Tigers and the PR guy for the Tigers for a number of years, passed away recently. And so we both, we went to the game and just, we're just, just watching, we're just watching the game talk. And then, then all of a sudden this play develops and um, it just looked harmless. It was middle of the fourth quarter, something like that. And the Lions are driving, trying to either tie the game or, or take the lead, and all of a sudden, everything just is different. It's just wrong. And you could see that the Lions had a player down, Chuck Hughes. And, you know, this is, we're not right on top of the play and all that, but you could see that things are out around. You know, some Lions are in their huddle. The Bears are over here kind of milling around and just 
sort of watching, you know, and it, it went on for minutes and minutes and minutes. And there were Dan Ewald finally said, look at that, they're pounding his chest. Oh, you know, and, and so I, I really, I really don't know how long this went, but the thing that, that I remember the most from that, well, I remember all of it, but at least I remember what I remember. And the thing that I remember the most that still sticks with me the most is when they took him from the playing field, off the field, through the dugouts, because they used the baseball dugouts and all that. They used the baseball locker rooms and, and clubhouses and all that. As they were taking Chuck Hughes off, he was yeah. on his back and his one arm was on, off, off the thing just dangling. And you can tell that it's not good. Yeah. And so the Eddie Wald and I just went to the game to watch the game. All of a sudden we're working. So Jerry Green, as you guys know, yeah. one of the, the real institutions, as a matter of fact, I wrote a column about it, but he was covering the Lions at that time. And we had economist Pete Waldmeyer, one of the all-time best. If you didn't know him or not, you were denied a privilege. He was the columnist. And so Dan and I, you know, good soldiers we were, thought, hey, look, we'll go out and get some notes for you and stuff like that and turn it over to you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know. So you were at the hospital then? We, yeah, we went to the hospital. And, and first of all, we waited outside the clubhouse or the locker room mm-hmm. like everybody else. And they were admitting anybody, which all of these signs are that this, this, is, really, yeah. this is really something. And something really bad. And so Dan and I went out to, went to Ford Hospital. I believe that's where they had a pep positive. And we just waited in this, in this room with a bunch of other people. In comes Nick Eddy, running back from Notre Dame. He was a, a player on that team. And comes another couple of guys. And then comes, and she was so distraught. And you could tell it was his wife. You know, mm-hmm. just, at, least, at least that's my take even now. And then somebody came in with a big bag and they had his clothes in it. I'm just watching this stuff and going, you know, finally, I guess it was a one o'clock game, probably ended around four o'clock, something like that. Finally, maybe an hour, two hours into it, they come out, as, as I recall it now, and make the announcement that Chuck Hughes passed away. And there was a Q&A between, I think it was the team physician, maybe. I'm not positive about that. And, you know, it was a heart attack and, you know, it went like that. He really did. And there's something I remember, I talked to Charlie Sanders, the late Charlie Sanders, mm-hmm. Hall of Fame tight end, the guy I got to know really well, working here and other things too. And this was maybe 10 years ago, guys. And mm-hmm. he just, well, I don't forget what we were talking about. I started asking him about Chuck, about Chuck Hughes. And I said, he told me, he says, yeah, we were, he said, the first thing I noticed, he said, was I went out and the Lions were trying to, you know, I think Greg Landry was the quarterback and the Lions were trying to, you know, they were running a two minute drill or something mm-hmm. like that. And. There's an overthrow, and, and Charlie told me he's jogging back to the jogging back to the huddle, and he's on the way by. You know, he was just on the, on the turf, and he just says to him, "Get up!" I didn't I didn't catch it. Yeah. I didn't catch it. Just assuming that Hughes was taking a dive to stop the clock. And I said, well, "Didn't you think?" He says, "He says, why would I think he was dying? It's never happened before in my yeah. life." You know. And then all of a sudden, it turns on, and okay, Maybe. everything is is hitting people at a different time in a different way. And that was just one of the examples of how it was, it was sinking in on Charlie. That was quickly now. We're talking about, yeah, we're moving in seconds, not minutes, you know, it's like maybe 15, 18, 20 seconds into the end of that play. It's hitting him and what has happened. And they just stand, mm-hmm. as, as I recall, just stood there and one until they took him away. And then they started, the, we started the game. Right. That's another part I remember. I just, it looked like, I think it was mm-hmm. Andy was the quarterback. On third or fourth down, he just threw the ball just to get rid of it. Uh-huh. Just yeah, you know, we're done. See, that was my my one of my follow ups for you, Mike. Is as we're talking about Hamlin, and you know they did stop the game. And yeah, that, I mean, there's some disagreement maybe about how that occurred, but mm. 
bottom line is they did stop the game and it felt like the right thing to do. You know, the eyes of the country, watching a guy fight for his life. I mean, how do you play football after something like that? And then you have the guys on the field, like that's their brother, their teammate, their colleague. Yeah. How do you ask the guys to go out there and, and play in a, any game, let alone a game like that? while their their teammate is, is fighting for his life someplace. Like it, it just, the non-starter, it's a no-go. It, it never made sense. When Chuck Hughes died, they did finish the game. They did finish the game. So I, correct. Yeah. Right. So I, I'm, you know, what was that like? What was it like for the players? What was the rest of that game? I guess, how did it play out with the, the heaviness of what? what yeah, I, yeah, I don't remember how much time was left in the game, but I don't think it was a lot. I also remember that uh, Butkus, the great middle linebacker for the Chicago Bears, was would have noticed him. And was waving to you know frantically you know, mm-hmm. to to the sideline. Come no, we need we need help here. We need help. And you know, I really I really haven't thought about why they started or why they didn't start it. You know, or, or didn't stop it. I'm sorry. I don't, it, it's something I just because they didn't. I guess was the answer. You know, mm-hmm. I know the Lions had another. They've had two others of, of this magnitude. 1991, Mike yeah. That was it. Uh, Lions playing the Rams. He rallied in the fourth quarter. Next thing you know, you notice Mike off to one side after Mike Farr had thrown, had caught a touchdown pass. And it turns out that he was engaged with a, with a defensive player, pitched forward, hit the crown of the cell, and it just exploded the bones that there, and it was vertebrae and all that. And in a matter of seconds, he was a quadriplegic. Yeah. And then 1997, yeah. you might remember this one, Reggie Brown, yeah. where yeah. that was even, that one was initially scarier than the, than the, and then the Mike Utley one was, and you can hear these teammates yelling, fight, fight, mm-hmm. fight, fight, fight. They started the game. and I'm You could hear that from the press box? I, I, you could hear something. And yeah. It's players were, were, okay. were translating okay. it. I couldn't hear exactly what mm-hmm. it was, but it was so quiet. It was. It really was the loudest crowd I've ever heard in my life. And one of the players after we were talking to him, he said, it went from the loudest place in the world to the quietest. Mm-hmm. You know, it was Steve Boyd, the linebacker. Yeah, that young linebacker on that team. So that's something that you've heard from people that were at the Bengals Bills game this week. That they said that the, the stadium, I mean, that, that's a prime time game, yeah. fighting for the top seed in the AFC, and all of a sudden is that that occurred and Hamlin's on the field, and you can see them giving CPR on the field. The stadium apparently went yeah. totally quiet. You know, I'm, I'm curious, Mike, when you did, did, were you watching the Hamlin game when uh, the- I was. You know, I just watched the Monday night games like a lot yeah. of people. You know, and I, you know, I thought upstairs for when he came back down. He was. He was down, and they were so I didn't see the hit or anything like that. Yeah. And I've never seen the replay. I don't know if they've ever shown it. Yeah, but I just you know I'm looking in. I'm looking. I go. Now you can see the players in the circle around them, and players from both both sides. You know, kind of locking arms of tens yeah. and consoling each other. And all I knew was this is bad. So okay. when you're watching that, what's, what's going through your mind, especially as a guy who's seen something that grave before here in Detroit a couple of times? Well, yeah, the first thing I thought of was Chuck Hughes, you know, because that was the ultimate, you know. And then yeah, I started thinking, these, just started thinking of these other ones. And look, there were some other players. You know, it wasn't quite as dramatic, but James Hunter, uh, really a terrific cornerback for the Detroit Lions, the last game of the 1982 season. And some sort of in his spine, you know, and never played again. Now he was fully recovered and all that, but you're just kind of watching. I don't know if you ever really get, so you sort of accept it, but I don't think you ever get used to it. And you certainly never like it, you know, at least not that I, I would, I don't know. Yeah. And you said, uh, you know, just remembering back to Chuck Hughes that, you know, time was only going by in seconds. So we're not it really going was, by yeah. slow. I mean, I think one of the lasting images from Monday night's game was just the players and the player reaction. Yeah, Do you, was it kind of like, 
did that kind of strike back memories? What was the player reaction on the field back then? And just was it kind of just a similar sight of guys just both teams coming together and just praying for that kid, basically? Yeah, I don't remember that that, that happening with with Chuck Hughes. I just I just don't. And but I wasn't watching it on television with close ups either, so I couldn't see tours or anything like that. Plus, they restarted the game. Yeah, you know, they, they, they continued the game, and I don't know if anybody ever asked why or not. I just I don't remember that part of it. Yeah, that was I, my next question: Was just was it brought up? Was it explained, I, or was it just part of the game back then to play on? Well, I wasn't on the beat then. You know, we're yeah, talking about that's right. Even with my great number that I faust off and faced off to him. I just, I just don't remember that yeah. part of it. I don't want to make up anything, nope. but there was, look, I think there was enough drama in its own right without adding to it. Do you remember what happened the following week? I mean, they kind of play out the rest of the, rest of the season and, uh, with the Lions. I think the Lions were rattled. They, like I said, they had a really good team and they were, like I said, they were 10 and four and they had to win their last five games, sort of like the Lions and the Packers there. To, to make the playoffs and which they did and all five of those teams were playoff teams you know and they were they really they had the best team in football at the end of the at the end of the 1971 season unfortunately they played at dallas and they couldn't score and they got beat five nothing you know well mike uh, that was 1970 i'm talking about yeah, yeah. the 1970 yeah. season yeah okay well, Mike, I, you know, we appreciate your expertise. You know, it's it's limited. But <laughs> <laughs> no, you were you were, you had you had feet on the ground, and and that's valuable as we try to keep these memories alive and and learn from them and try to understand Hamlin and what happened and what he's you know what he's going through, what his family's going through, what his team and, and teammates are going through. Especially, I mean, this is such a unique situation where it's a climactic point of the season. They're trying to lock in the, the, the first seed in the FC. Now those teams, Cincinnati and, and of course Buffalo, have to figure out how to move on as well. There's just a lot to understand, and, and you were there for a situation that was pretty similar. And people are definitely talking about. So we we appreciate that. Yeah, just, yeah, just one other thing. The thing that I I thought about was some of what you just said. But I also thought about here was a guy who was a sixth round draft pick. And I looked up his bio, and I'm not sure I got the stats correctly, but. I think he started a couple of games, a few games as a, as a rookie, and he started 13 or 14 this year, which means he's made a role on that team. And look, as a sixth round draft pick, he's making good money, okay? Maybe 600, 700 thou a year. But think about it, just extrapolate out how he's doing. And in another two years, he's going to make sign a three year extension for 35 mil or something like that and take care of his family. And a lot of those, I call them kids or young men. That's what they can't wait to retire their mother and their father and their sister and all that stuff. And that's what you know, he was on the brink of, you know, of, first of all, he's doing whatever he wants to do. There's no place in the world he'd rather be that in that stadium on that night. And all of a sudden, here we are, one of, you know, gasping to catch his breath. Yeah, sad. Yeah, well, the good news is that it sounds like he's, you know, health-wise, that he's he's in improving shape, and we don't want to get you know too far ahead of things. But that's something to to rest on as as so far. Absolutely, sure, absolutely. Thanks, yeah. Mike. Guys, Great. thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Okay, Ben. You know, we do have a game still on tap this week, so let's turn to to Matt Schneidman, our next guest, the Packers beat writer for the Athletic. Matt, it's been you know a, a heavy week here in Allen Park, and players grappling with the Hamlin situation. And, uh, you know, it echoes strongly here. Chuck Hughes, one of the receivers from back in the day, died on the field in 1971. Earlier this year, they had an ambulance drive onto the field when uh, Savion Smith suffered a neck injury in New England. He was paralyzed for like 20 seconds. So I, I know there was kind of a triggering effect going on for a lot of players in Detroit with what they saw on Monday night. And now they got to figure out how to play a big game 
on Sunday night with a playoff berth at stake. So I guess as we turn it to you, what's it been like in Green Bay this week? How are coaches and especially players dealing with this weird duality going on with the heaviness of the week, with the stakes of play on Sunday? Yeah, I mean, as Aaron Rodgers has said, you know, both on Pat McAfee's show yesterday and and today with us, this isn't just something you gloss over. Like, yes, they have a massive game this week, but you can't just gloss over this with the severity of it. Matt LaFleur gave a lengthy opening statement about the whole situation this morning. They had a voluntary session after practice today with Dr. Chris Carr, who's the team's main behavioral health clinician, their main mental health resource that anybody who wanted to attend could. Obviously, this didn't affect the Packers specifically, but it certainly has ripple effects throughout the league because these are guys who are put in these situations every day. And, you know, Rodgers was saying on McAfee yesterday, let's just take a little time out here, realize what's really important. And certainly the duality of, of this massive game with what happened on Monday night is an interesting one, to say the least. I don't know if that's the right word to use to describe it, but definitely some somber thoughts, somber moods, but at the same time, among guys who... No, they have to get ready for a game that they have to win to get into the playoffs. Obviously, we're hoping and praying that that DeMar Hamlin pulls through and, and gets back to a normal life. And that's the most important thing. It's the most important thing for sure. You know, it's it's like I, I've been doing this for 10 years. I can't really remember something quite like this where you, you know the stakes and what's there to be played for on Sunday. I mean, for Detroit, a team that never goes to the playoffs, hasn't gone to the playoffs since 2016, hasn't won a playoff game since 1991, the longest drought by far in the league. This is as big as it gets, this kind of game on Sunday night, last game of the season, primetime TV, Lambeau Field, you know, the hated Packers. And I know there's a lot of animosity. I would say a building animosity in the locker room toward Aaron Rodgers and some of the things that he said about Detroit this year. And yet it's this like sobering backdrop of one of our peers almost died. And there's some triggering things going on for Lions players too, with, like I said, with the Savion Smith situation in, in New England, where he was temporarily paralyzed by, by a neck injury. You know, the Jonah Jackson starting guard, uh, he played at Rutgers and he didn't play with Eric LeGram, but he knew him very well, uh, a player who is paralyzed in a game for, for Rutgers. I mean, Jason Cabinda, a fullback, was talking to me about how his mother called him and he could hear in her voice that she was just scared for him to be playing at all. And they had like basically a prayer for, for Hamlin in the moment. Another player, Austin Bryant, told me that he thinks they shouldn't play the game at all on Sunday. And of course, it, you know, all times point to it being played, but I think it speaks to the mindset that this isn't just another thing that's happening nationally and then everyone moves on. It's, it's really galling the players in a, in, a, in a serious way. And yet, as professionals in a billion-dollar business, they have to find a way to not only get up on Sunday, but they have to find a way to get up for a, the kind of game they've been preparing for mm -hmm. their whole lives. And it's just a, a really difficult circumstances, to say the least. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, as Aaron Rodgers has said, they're creatures of habit and they've fought through different kinds of adversity. But this is this is definitely more serious. And listen, they're humans, too. And sometimes we forget that. And it looks like, like you said, that all the games are going to go off as scheduled on Sunday. They're going to fight through adversity again. This time, it's obviously tougher than in past times. Because you don't know if players are going to second guess going into a hit, going into a tackle, or just kind of how their mindset changes. Because you can't really, well, you can't go half speed at all in a football game or else that's how you get hurt. And we won't, obviously, I don't think, be able to tell if there's going to be any difference or effect when we're watching the game in real time on Sunday night. But whether it's mentally, physically, 
it's impossible to just push this aside and we shouldn't expect anyone to. Let's turn to the game a bit. As I alluded to before, there's, I don't know if animosity is quite the right word, but Lions players have taken note of some of the things Aaron Rodgers has said this year regarding Detroit. I think in particular, his comments coming out of the first game in week nine that Detroit won and Aaron Rodgers said after that game that we can't lose to a team like that. And I think what he said was entirely correct. I think the way he said it was also okay. <laughs> like the Lions have been a doormat historically. They were still a doormat at that time. The Green Bay has different expectations. But the way players took that was a little like as a sign of disrespect. Detroit has come back from the dead since that game and, and played well. And yet on Monday Night Football, I believe it was when Rodgers was asked after that game about having a difficult schedule down the stretch and having three teams that were above 500. He's like, well, you know, actually one of those teams is at 500, referring to Detroit. Again, like to me, it's a harmless deal. I think to the Lions yeah. players, it's a little bit of a sign of to them that Rodgers is, is being a little disrespectful to what they are or, or where they are. So I guess I'm just curious what Aaron Rodgers has been like this week with regard to this game and his respect of where Detroit is. Yeah, I think, you know, it goes back to Michael Jordan literally making up stories yeah. to motivate him. That's yeah, kind of what it seems like. He was asked about the Lions turnaround and and the exact quote Rodgers gave today was, I think they've got some guys healthy on offense. Jared's been very consistent. They've got two good runners. They've got a lot of weapons on the outside. Defense, they've done some different things in the past. I don't know, eight or nine games, but they've been playing a little bit more sound and they've been playing with a lot of energy. I think our game kind of maybe galvanized them to turn it back in the right direction and they've been playing really good football. As good as just about anybody in the league the last nine weeks. So everyone over there can relax. <laughs> I, I, listen, he is, he is never one to you know, downplay an opponent until yeah. maybe after the fact. We've heard him say in the last couple of weeks when they beat the Bears and Rams at the start of this four-game winning streak, you know, those are teams we should have beaten. Those are not great teams. And then after the Lions game, he says, you know, can't be losing to a team like that. So he does take these little, I don't know if you want to call them jabs or whatever, maybe just statements of fact after the game. But listen, he has a lot of respect for this team. I think him more than anyone knows, coming off the high of their demolition of the Vikings, can't overlook this Lions team because if they do, Packers will be watching the playoffs from home. Yeah, and you mentioned, Rodgers mentions that game kind of galvanized the Lions moving forward. I mean, you kind of look at the other side and the Packers have really kind of put it together since that game too. It's just fascinating to see where these two teams were in week nine and even where they were for a couple of weeks after that to be in the last game of the regular season. So what started to click? I mean, has it been the young pieces getting it together on both sides of the ball or has it been kind of just finding their footing. What's kind of clicked for the Packers since that week nine game that's got them to this point where they're winning their end? Yeah, well, Aaron Rodgers isn't throwing, you know, three interceptions in the end zone every game now. Fair point. Their defense has played a lot better. You know, speaking on their their four-game win streak specifically, they had their bye week in there too, but they are second in, tied for second in the league in turnovers forced with 12. They had 12 turnovers forced from weeks one to 12, 12 turnovers forced in the last three games, nine interceptions, which is most in the league in that span. Rodgers isn't playing great, but I think it's encouraging that the Packers are still winning these games. Granted, the first two were against the Bears and Rams, but the last two have been against the Dolphins and then the Vikings 41-17 and 14 of those Vikings points were scored against when the Packers had backup defenders in uh, late in the game. So they're playing really good complimentary football. They have the best kick returner in the league in Keyshawn Nixon. 
who leads the league in kick return yards and, and yards per kick return, just returned 105 yards to the house against the Vikings last week. They're, they're forcing turnovers on defense. They got a good one-two punch in the run game with Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon that, that we're seeing. You know, nobody's scored more rushing touchdowns than A.J. Dillon, I don't believe, in the last, you know, since week 12. Christian Watson's even factoring in the run game, had a 46-yard rushing touchdown against the Bears a couple weeks back. So they're getting contributions from everywhere. And that complimentary football we didn't really see for the first, what, two-thirds of the season that we are seeing now. And I think that's the big difference. On a scale of one to 10, Matt, how much do you miss Jamal Williams? <laughs> oh, a lot. It's got to be pretty high on that scale. And I'll, I'll pull up what Rogers said about, well, Matt LaFleur said today that I want to make sure I get this exact quote right. He said, Jamal's a guy that's tough to root against, although I'll find it in my body to do that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Aaron Rodgers had, had similar comments today. I'm just pulling it up right here. You know, Jamal is one of his favorite teammates here. He said, I'm a hugger, so if I see Jamal, I'm giving him a hug. I love Jamal. He's one of my all-time favorites. He's one of the happiest teammates we've ever had, one of the greatest guys in the locker room that I've been able to work with. Not just an absolute tough guy and a stud on the field, but a great, interesting person off the field with all his various interests. So there is nobody that's going to be personally rooting against Jamal Williams in this locker room, I don't believe. And his, <laughs> his best friend in the world, Aaron Jones, too. Um, I didn't get a chance to talk to Aaron Jones today, but listen, there, there's nobody in this locker room here at 1265 Lombardi Ave that will say a bad thing about Jamal Williams. Yeah, I, he's definitely a hugger. So I, I think he's getting a hug back. Jamal's also a dancer. I can speak from personal yeah. experience on this, so I think that we're going to see some of that. On Sunday night, he's played very well this year. He's won off the Lions all-time record, actually, for rushing touchdowns in a season. I think he's got 15 of them. 15, so he's, he's played very well. He played very well last week, too. He has been in a bit of a rut at large in the in the second half of the season. It's really been Jared Goff, I would say, keeping this offense afloat. And given their defense and the ups and downs there, it's really been Jared Goff keeping this team afloat, I would say, during this push. Jared Alexander is one of the best cornerbacks in the league. So I'm kind of intrigued by this matchup. How exactly is Alexander used? Do you expect him to travel with somebody or does he anchor someplace on the field? Yeah, I'm curious about that, that matchup. They kind of change it up. I mean, we've seen a lot of different stuff with how Joe Barry has used Jair this season. Like week one, he didn't travel with Justin Jefferson, only guarded him on about, you know, one third of his of his routes, Jefferson's that is. And Jefferson went off, had nine catches for 184 yards, two touchdowns that day. None of those targets or catches came with Jair as as on him. So then they play the Vikings this past weekend. Jair is with him on two thirds of his routes. And Justin Jefferson has one catch for 15 yards. So I don't know if they're going to have him shadow St. Brown. My guess would be a little bit, not fully. You know, he has shadowed the likes of Garrett Wilson, but then he struggled against Terry McLaurin, given up some big plays to the Bears. And listen, he hasn't been exceptional this season. And you expect someone who's the highest paid cornerback in NFL history at $21 million a year to be exceptional. But he showed on Sunday against Justin Jefferson why he is still one of the best cornerbacks in the league. And, you know, going back to your original question, I'll be interested to see what they do, because do the Packers think that the Lions just have one predominant receiving threat? I would argue that they have more than that, even though there is a clear number one in Amon Ross St. Brown. So I would expect Jair to shadow him a little bit, but not specifically. You know, he doesn't, at least from, you know, a casual watch of the game, I don't think Jair does much traveling across the line of scrimmage. I could be wrong, but motion is probably the way to get him off your top guy if there's any way of doing that. So I'll be interested to see how both sides kind of handle it on Sunday.
We're running a little on time, but before we get you out of here, give a prediction. Have you gotten that far for this game? No, but I can give you one now. Look at this. Listen, I, I the Lions are obviously no slouch, but I have said for weeks now, there's just something intangible about this Packers run, this Packers resurgence that they've had that has me think that they might not only get in the playoffs, but do some damage there too. And I've seen some people on Twitter be like, we're more worried about the Lions than than the Vikings. But I think the Packers ultimately win a close game. We'll go 27-21. And heck, Lions might not still be alive by the time this right. game kicks off, depending on what happens in the Seahawks game. I don't think that will change how they play. But I think regardless, Packers win 27-21 at home and uh, punch their ticket. My prediction? Yeah. Mine, I just was on Green Bay Radio before we did this, and I picked uh, <laughs> Packers a 20-17 in a close one. Yeah, I don't do I don't do scores, but I feel really good about a Packers win. <laughs> it's been a magical season for Detroit, but it's a house of horrors in Green Bay, and there's a ton of baggage there in this team now. I I don't know. It's been a great run. I just don't see it happening, especially against Aaron Rodgers in that offense. The, the, I mean, the their momentum is you know it's one of the hottest teams yeah. in football, not named Detroit these days. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, thank you very much. I know it was a very, it's a very heavy week for all of us. Very busy week. So appreciate you taking the time. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. This has been Ben Raven and Kyle Mikey of MLive's Detroit Lions Beat. Thank you for listening to the Dungeon of Doom, an MLive Detroit Lions podcast. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Google. Like I said, wherever you get them and listen to them, make sure to subscribe to the Dungeon of Doom. Thanks again. Thanks again.